Well, hey, good morning. If you haven't said happy Valentine's Day to your uh, spouse or significant other, too late. Don't do it now. That would be totally inappropriate. Okay, you can, you can say happy Valentine's Day to the person you're sitting next to you. Go ahead. Uh, well, we're glad that you're here. Um, a couple weeks ago, back in January, uh, my wife, Kristen, and I, we had the opportunity to head up to the Northwoods of Wisconsin, and uh, I've been missing a couple weekends here at the campus, and some people thought I was out maybe in the Caribbean on a beach. I was up in Wisconsin uh, speaking at a few camps, working hard, I, I assure you, and uh, really, my wife and I, on particular occasion, we had the opportunity to speak to uh, college, or not college, high school seniors. It's a whole entire group of high school seniors uh, who are entering their last semester of high school, preparing uh, for this next chapter in their life and being able to encourage them with some uh, just bits of wisdom here and there, and um, really just had a great time sharing with them uh, what Chris and I had learned through our lives, but also what God's Word says about how to make good decisions in their life. And so I um, wanted you to know that the ministry of this church is kind of reaching different areas and different people and being uh, involved and in opening up God's Word, and we're just grateful for that. Um, but sometimes when I go to these camps and speak, um, I'm often, like, prepared to, like, rough it a little bit. Um, some camps I've gone to, it's been like, you know, they were built in the Cold War era, and there's like a bunker, and that's where they're like, hey, you're the speaker, great. Well, why don't you come stay in those really nice accommodations? It's, if, there's a, if there's a nuclear attack, you'll be safe, but otherwise, there's no amenities at all. And uh, I remember this past January, um, Kristen and I went up to the Northwoods of Wisconsin, and the camp gave us, I, I got to just tell you, like, I don't get a lot of perks in ministry, but this was a perk. Like this nice little cottage nestled away in the woods. Uh, there was just this, it was beautiful. It was on the lake. It was snow falling. It was like the most picturesque. On a day like today, when it's Valentine's Day, like that's the place you want to go is like the cottage in the woods that no one can find you and there's no cell reception. Like deer were walking in the front yard. It was just gorgeous. And um, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, more of a book by the fire kind of guy. And so uh, being up in a cabin in the woods, with my family uh, up there, I, I took it upon myself, seeing a fireplace as, as the man of the house, to kind of be the guy that was like, you know what, there's always going to be a, this setting deserves a fire in the fireplace all the time. Anybody else kind of like that? Like, there's a sweet fireplace, you're like, oh, let's use this thing. And so I remember I stacked up some wood, and I, um, in my house here in Indiana, um, I stack the wood, and then I get a, a, one, of those, one of those lighters, you know, a little like clicky, like things, and like the flame comes out way up here, and then I just go like this and turn the gas on, and then like burns forever because the gas, my Nipsco bill goes crazy, but it, we have a great fire. And I uh, stack the wood up in Wisconsin, and I go get the little clicky thing, and I do this, and I go look for the gas pipe, and I realized my man card was going to be tested here <laughs> in Wisconsin because this is a more of a primitive time, and uh, so I was never a Boy Scout, but I watched a couple, um, you know, fires get made, and um, so it just kind of started this thing up, and, and uh, man card validated. Within a couple moments, we had a roaring fire, and it was fantastic. I pulled up a chair and a, and a book and just was enjoying just being with my family in this environment. I just loved it, and occasionally, you know, the fire would, would not have the benefit of gas helping it out, and I'd have to rotate the logs or add another log to the fire to keep this thing going. And for the whole week, that was like my job, was like, this thing's got to be going all the time. 
And one day, uh, there was lunch in the dining hall with the students, and so we go to that, and um, I came back. I'd gone by myself, came back, brought food back for the family, and I happened to look over at the fireplace and realize that in my absence, um, my wife and my mother-in-law who came up with us to watch our kids, like, neither one of them cared about the fire. And I was appalled. I was like, guys, this is my one job. Like, how could you not look after the one thing that I've been working so hard? Do you know how hard it is? There's no little thing to, like, this is a tough job. And, uh, and without anyone paying attention, the fire just quickly went out. Um, romance is like that. Anybody here married today? Sorry, this is Single Awareness Day. I'm sorry if you're single. Anybody here married today? Yeah, and, and um, can testify to the fact that um, sometimes it's hard to keep the fire going. I could get an amen there, but your spouse is right next to you, so I heard it silently. That's fine. That's fine. Um, and uh, I think that despite all of our best intentions, despite all of what we, what we think is possible in life, we, we have these grand expectations at the altar, don't we? That, that I'll love you forever, for always, till death do us part. And then you come home from the honeymoon and things get complicated and busy and uh, sometimes there's conflicts that come up. Uh, occasionally you want to fix a relationship so you have kids, which is an interesting idea. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, so let's get married and live together and then introduce new sinners into this family and somehow the net equation of this is harmony. Uh, and, and, so, and so we realize very quickly, like, life is, life, life takes work. Life, life is hard. It, relationships are tough. And I don't know if you're here today on Valentine's Day, um, and maybe the pain of past relationships is still lingering over your soul, or, or possibly the pain that you're currently in right now is just putting you in this position where you're just coming in today and saying, like, man, this is a tough day. And maybe you're here today and your relationship is thriving and you've never been in a better position. What I want to talk to us today out of God's word is this question. Is it possible for us to keep the fire of romance going in our relationships and not let it die out? Is it, is it possible? Is it possible? So many people, even Christians, have been in relationships where the fire of romance has been uh, snuffed out or neglected. And we have this question, is it even possible for us to endure life and, and see relationship, one relationship through all the way and to grow and to thrive and to have it be a life-giving relationship? How many know this? It's easy to fall in love. Someone here is single and you're like ready to throw something at me. That's a, I'm sorry. What I mean is that it's, it's, it's easy to fall in love, but what's hard? Staying in love. That's a varsity sport. To be able to stay in love takes a certain level of toughness and commitment and, and a little self-sacrifice and, and, and active, giving love. I think we notice this at wedding receptions. Have you ever been to a wedding reception where uh, the, the favorite dance at most of these things is for the newlyweds to get out on the dance floor, and then they ask the people who have been married the longest to get out there and dance? Have you seen these dances? 
It's, they're, they're great. And, and the whole idea is that you see this young couple in their innocence and in their early days starting out. Like, this is brand new love. It's fresh love. It's admired love. And then they're juxtaposed. They're, they're, they're on the same dance floor with this couple who's been married for 60, 65 years. And if we're all honest, if you could be very honest today, in that moment, you look at those two couples, and which one do we want to be like? No one wants to be new love. Everyone wants old love. Because old love is tried. Old love has been tested. Old love has seen life through some hard situations and has come out stronger. Old love knows what it means to give and to sacrifice and to thrive. And so all of us in our heart of hearts, we want to grow old and we want to have love that endures. And so how, how, how can we do this? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. I want you to open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. If it's uh, not been worn in your Bible, it's okay. Actually, this Bible right here folds right open to Song of Solomon. It's something that uh, I've read much of. As best as I can tell, uh, this portion of Scripture today in Song of Solomon chapter 7 is probably got the least amount of material written on it and the least amount of, least amount of sermons ever preached on it. Out of the whole Bible, I would, I would venture to guess, as much as I can tell, few pastors have waded into the confusing nature of Song of Solomon and preached Song of Solomon chapter 7. Um, for starters, there's a few reasons. For starters, Song of Solomon is a book that requires some immense historical and cultural understanding to make sense of the often weird and sometimes offensive-sounding things that are said in Song of Solomon. Um, it's also a book about love, dating, marriage, sex, romance, and attraction, and that can be uncomfortable in a church environment, and mixed company with little kids or just different things. And so sometimes we just veer away from Song of Solomon. Some of you, you're like, Song of Solomon, that's the part of the Bible that I used to read in my bedroom when I was in middle school with the door locked. So no one would see me reading Song of Solomon. I think um, another reason that we avoid Song of Solomon is that because the message of Song of Solomon is, is layered. Um, Song of Solomon has historically been understood in different ways. It's, it's, it's got allegory to it, which means that there's two layers happening in the story. There's the surface layer of what's actually said, and then there's the deeper layer of what this truth really re relates to. And so sometimes Song of Solomon can be confusing, and so we stay away from it. I want to submit to us today that we look at the surface layer of Song of Solomon because I believe that it has something to teach the Christian about life and romance and marriage, especially what it means to grow old together. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers from the 1800s, was not afraid of Song of Solomon. In fact, he preached 63 messages on the Song of Solomon, although he never touched Song of Solomon chapter 7. Even in my own family, my grandfather, Warren Wiersbe, was an author. He's still an author, a pastor. Many of you know him. Um, he wrote a, a book on every single book of the Bible, with the exception of Song of Solomon. That's my grandfather. It's in my roots. We've avoided Song of Solomon. And um, it wasn't until later in his ministry that someone called him out on it, and he was like, well, I just don't know what to call the book. Like, what do you call a book on Song of Solomon? Someone looked back at him and said, why don't you just call it Be Careful? And uh, so now you can go on Amazon.com and buy his book on Song of Solomon because he actually ended up writing it. I'm sorry, you sh I shouldn't have told you guys to go buy my grandpa's book. 
What I should have done is told you how to spell his name. So it's W-I-E-R-S-B-E. And then you can support my inheritance fund. That'd be fine. If you're on your phone during this message, I'll assume you're just placing the order. That's, that's fine. Song of Solomon is, in my estimation, the most important book in the Bible for us today. Um, it was E.J. Young who, who said this. He said, Song of Solomon comes to us in this world of sin, where lust and passion are on every hand, where fierce temptations assail us and try to turn us from the God-given standard of marriage. And it reminds us, in particularly beautiful fashion, how pure and noble true love is. This is what we're after today in the Song of Solomon, pure, noble, true love. So let's jump into Song of Solomon chapter 7. We're going to skip around a little bit. This moment in the book is, is a moment where uh, Solomon and his bride have been married. They've gone through their wedding ceremony. They've uh, gone on their honeymoon. And now in chapter 7, they're growing old together. I want you to see with me. Look at how Solomon treats his wife. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine, and your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Okay, so let me just help you right there before you ladies think that this is the least romantic book in the Bible, and you guys go out here on Valentine's Day and write in your wife's card, wife, your rounded thighs are like <laughs> jewels, and your belly is just like a heap of wheat. Um, and don't, don't encourage using this language. There's a little bit of a cultural difference here, don't you think? Um, and uh, here, here's something amazing here about what Solomon's doing. Um, this man is complimenting his wife, and he takes time to notice in her the things that no one else notices. And every other time that Solomon engages his wife or this girl that he's attracted to before they're married, he, he notices things, and he always starts in Song of Solomon with her eyes. And then he compliments her about her eyes and, and her character, and then he moves all the way down her body to her feet. But here, as their love has grown older, as their love has been tested and has become more mature, Solomon actually, he, he reverses the order. And he starts with this woman's feet, with his wife's feet. These are the things in marriage that actually are really beautiful. Because the longer you get to know someone, the more intimately you get to know someone, the more you notice the things that no one else notices. And if we want to have marriages that last till death do us part, if you want to throw a big log on the fire of romance in your family, take it right here from Solomon. You have to notice, this is the first thing, notice what no one else notices. Notice what no one else notices. He says, that she's a noble daughter, and her feet prove it. That her body reminds him of noble jewels, masterfully created, giving an, an intoxicating emotion. And when he talks about her belly as a heap of wheat, you only need to know this about the Hebrew mind, that, that, that back in this day, the, the seat of emotion was the belly. It was, it was the stomach. We say things today like, follow your heart. They would ask the question, well, what's your gut? And so to understand this is, is that this is Solomon saying, in your heart of hearts, in your, in your belly, this is what I admire about you, is that I see your heart, your emotion. And whenever you would call your wife wine or wheat in, um, in Israel, these would be the early 
and the late crops. These would be the things that were celebrated at the festival of Pentecost or the festival of um, tabernacles, where the feast, you would gather the grain or you'd harvest the vineyard. And so listen, for a man to tell his wife that your belly is the best of wine and the best of wheat is to say that of all the blessings in the world that God has given us to enjoy, you are the greatest blessing to me. Now, ladies, you wouldn't mind hearing that every once in a while, would you? Would you? Okay, that's fine. You can play along here. Um, Right. Solomon is saying that of all the things that God's given me, in you I find such a blessing. And if you want to kindle a long-haul relationship, you've got to notice the thing that no one else notices. And in this marriage relationship, there are only things that your spouse notices about you, which only your spouse should notice about you. And women, isn't it true that when your husband takes time to compliment you on something that no one else sees, it just draws you even deeper into your relationship with him, right? You can kind of elbow your, nut, your husband right now and be like, he's telling the truth, that's, that's a truth thing. And Solomon was the only one who knew what this woman's thighs looked like. He was the only one who had seen her belly. And he says to her, almost seductively to say, hey, I see you, and I like what I see. It's an anti-creation idea that the body is bad. In the early church, it was known as the heresy of Gnosticism. This idea that our bodies are gross, that our bodies are evil, that our bodies are things to be overcome. But I love that Solomon is not grossed out by his wife's body. In fact, he says that your body is a blessing to me. He has the privilege in his marriage to notice what nobody else can notice and to share with her what he notices. And that's the key is that after you notice what that no one else notices, to share with your spouse, hey, I want you to know I see this in you. Um, I've been married to Kristen now for six years, and it um, seems just like it was six days. Um, she's actually at home sick today, but I told her I was going to say that, and then she laughed at me. And uh, I find after six years, I'm just starting to understand this principle. Like, just starting to realize that I need to notice about my wife the things that no one else notices. Um, sort of shamefully, and maybe you guys can relate with me without being so obvious in this, but, like, uh, I, I've just realized that when she says things walking through a store, like, oh, that's pretty. Like, that's a hint to me, like, hey, I want that. <laughs> and uh, when she's watching a commercial or sees a necklace or something, it's like, oh, that's so pretty. I, oh, that, I really love that that I should probably like take a note and notice what she really likes because as a husband, I want to I notice the things about my wife that drive her and, and, and the things that she loves and the things that I can encourage her with. Sometimes she's even gone so far as to say, hey, Dan, if you're wondering what to get me for my birthday, I want this. And I'm amazed and disappointed with myself at how many times I'll have a moment of feeling like, I want to get Kristen something. Like, what would she want? Or Christmas rolls around, and I'm thinking, what am I going to get her for Christmas? And I think back, and I go, nothing. I think she's good. <laughs> like, I think she's got everything she wants. This is easy. Marriage is awesome. 
And, and, and this is Solomon's point, right, is that we would be noticing the things about our spouse and taking note of the things that our spouse loves so that we can in turn go and, and then have that moment and be like, hey, hey, babe, you know, I see this in you and I just want you to know that I love this about you. I've been recognizing that, that you have this quality about you. That fuels romance. Amen? And uh, guys, this is work. This is like the varsity part of the varsity sport. But when we study our spouse, we figure out what makes them tick, what makes them hurt, what heals their wounds, what they dream about. And in moments of the two of you being together, you can speak words of life over your spouse and words of healing where they might be harmed. And you can, as a couple, draw closer together when you just take time to notice what no one else notices. Too many of us guys save our best romantic lines for Valentine's Day and our anniversaries. And guys, we're better than that. Aren't we? We can up our game a little bit more, right? Like, like just saying I love you on Valentine's Day is kind of like trying to celebrate the Super Bowl, but actually not putting in the work in the offseason and failing to make the playoffs. It's like you want the end result, but you're not willing to put in the work. And so, so guys, just today... Make it your declaration that you're going to notice the things about your wife that no one else notices, and then share them with her. I saw two really great examples of this um, in our church this past week, and I just want to share it with you now. I, I was on Facebook, which I seldom am, but I was this past week, and saw um, one of the guys in our church had written a post, and in the post, he just wrote his wife's name. And in Facebook, that like triggers that person to understand like somebody has said something about you. And um, his wife looked at the post and then commented back underneath it and said, what? <laughs> and then smoothly he said, nothing. You're just what's on my mind. I mean, like, come on, guys. <laughs> come on, right? And uh, maybe a little too much PDA on Facebook. Um, but like, how, how, how much is that wife drawn into his heart? Last week, I had a conversation here at church where a husband was just with his wife sitting next to him, telling me about the way that he loves watching her heart be demonstrated in the way that she serves the people around him, and the way that uh, God puts people along their path, and she just willingly, and it's her gift just to love these people, and I remember uh, as we're listening and he's sharing with me, his, his wife is just sitting there kind of just in tears, so grateful for the way her husband notices what no one else notices. And, and ladies, um, your husband likes to hear things about him from you just as much as you like to hear things about you from him. And uh, you are in a unique position as a, as, a, as a wife to speak into the heart of your husband, to, to help shape his soul. Uh, Matt Chandler wrote a book on uh, the mingling of souls, which is a, a great book, and I, I recommend it to you. Um, and he says this to wives. He says the power that a wife has to speak truth into her husband's life. He says he deals every day with criticism, internal and external. And if your husband is like most men, he's haunted by feelings of inadequacy and failure. And he will nearly always struggle with insecurity about his masculinity, his strengths, and his gifts. And you are in an extraordinary position to either add to these insecurities or combat them. And your words mean the most 
to him. So when we notice what no one else notices about your husband, then you share with him how you see those things and how it blesses you. It absolutely adds a log of romance to that fire of your relationship. So that's the first thing. We want to notice what no one else notices. Y'all with me? Let's, let's keep looking. Let's jump down on your page here to Song of Solomon chapter 7, verse 11. Solomon's wife is going to respond to him here. Solomon's just laid out just this great poem of her beauty and how much he admires her. And this is how she responds in verse 11. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. To kindle romance, uh, to stay in love, we notice what no one else notices, but, but here we see in Solomon and his wife that they, I want you to write this down, uh, keep dates to keep dating. Uh, probably the most obvious advice that anyone ever gives you is, hey, when you get married, just keep dating. Just make sure you just keep dating your spouse. Just keep going on dates. And anyone who's been married a few days knows just the benefit that there is in continuing to date your spouse. But isn't it also true that sometimes in the midst of our busy lives, you have to keep a date open so that you can even have a date? Like you have to intentionally work where it used to come so easy for you just to have a date with your spouse. You have to, you have to, you have to set aside time. You have to actually say, like, we're going to do this this day, and it's, this is our time together. And this is exactly what Solomon's wife is suggesting to him here. He says, she says, hey, Let's set aside some time and go out into the fields and spend a weekend away in the villages. We'll get up early. We'll go to the vineyards. She says to him, hey, it's so important for me and you to keep spending time together away from the busyness of life. And so listen, if you've never been to church in a long time or like you don't like coming to church because you feel like it's just a lot of advice, this is the one bit of advice I think that every single one of us can walk out of here today and put to use, whether you're a Christian or not. It's that you might take time with your spouse and do something fun. Like, you should do that. Like, God's word says that we should be keeping dates to keep dates. You don't have to go to Europe. You don't have to go to the Bahamas. You don't have to go anywhere extravagant. It's just something to keep you engaged with your spouse, to take time away from the chaos of the kids, to get away from the stress of the job. Just go somewhere where you're not going to feel the weight of everything else going on, and you can just be together. One of my favorite things to do last summer um, was to get home from work, get, get back from the office, pack up the car, go with my wife to the beach. And we just lay there and watch the sunset, and it was just a very simple, free, but very heart-drawing-out time. I think so many of us, we, we walk through life and our lives are busy. It's, it's a busy life, it is. And in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of us uh, having dreams and careers and ambitions, having things to do, so many of us lose our spouse in the details. And all of a sudden you become someone who just shares a room with someone else and you share a, a, a home together, but you don't share your life together. And Solomon and his wife show that there's time for us to get away, to keep dating. 
time away from everything else. It's a time to check in with each other, just to, to ask on a heart level, hey, how am I doing as a husband? How, how, how am I doing to help you in what you have to do? What have you been dreaming about lately? How, how can we pray together? What are our goals? What do we feel that the Lord is calling us to do? These are great questions to ask every once in a while, to connect at a heart level. And notice, notice what Solomon's wife, look back at verse 13. Notice what Solomon's wife suggests as they go away. They keep dates, they keep dating. She says here in Solomon, Song of Solomon 7.13, she says this. She says, there we can talk, and I can tell you all the things that you've done wrong. I'll guilt you into feeling like I have it harder than you do, and if we're lucky, we'll walk away out of the meal together and not come back home broke. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not at all what she says. Um, but isn't it true that in marriages, that's sometimes how our communication system goes? Like some of us feel like, Dan, I haven't dated my wife in so long. For, for me to go on a date with her and open her up, myself up to some of these issues in my heart, um, it's like you're blindfolding me and sending me through a field filled with landmines. Like, I'd rather just not open myself up to it. Um, but this is why what comes, actually comes in verse 13 of chapter 7 is so important to us. Let's look at what it actually says. She says to him, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. This would cause early Jewish readers to blush. Um, Mandrakes were an aphrodisiac. And this woman is flirtatiously telling her husband, hey, I've got something new to show you. And I think you'll like it. And um, guys, I'm pretty sure Solomon ditched his golf league in an instant and didn't think twice about it. And they teach us this third log of keeping the fire going in romance. It's, it's that we would give love, not assignments or advice that in our relationships we would be giving active love. You see, a healthy marriage is one where uh, words that are given speak life and they feed one another and, and the, the security and the confidence in each other grows the longer that you're together. And when these two things happen, when you notice the things that no one else notices and you keep dates to keep dating, you can connect on a heart level, it's so easy to give love. It's so easy. And so if you want to grow in your relationship, give love, not assignments, and not advice. I once heard a pastor say, um, to stay in love, you have to make love, <coughs> excuse me, a verb. To stay in love, you have to make love a verb. Did I cough at a weird time? I'm sorry. <coughs> and... Um, by that, he simply means, and I think it's a very good point, that by that, he simply means that, that love can't just be this some ethereal idea. Love has to be active. That there has to be a giving, some sort of, some sort of going out and actually doing something for your spouse to actually give love. So many people think that in their marriage, they can just give love just by sitting there. I'm here, aren't I? And... Um, Passive attendance is not active love. To actually serve your spouse, to actually love your spouse, to take time to show them what you care about. I think about the couples, even in this room, who have spouses who are um, ill or 
re- recovering from some surgery or, or whatever it is, and, and so many of the spouses here, and I can see faces, uh, actively give love to their spouse every time they show up at a hospital room. The maturity of love. This is what we're going for, to see as we go through life that there's ways for us to continue to serve our spouses. I uh, spoke with a few respected pastors this week about the state of marriage and love in the church. And one of the things that I heard from one of the guys, I I kept hearing this refrain, that spouses are withholding love from their, in their marriages. Not just sex, although that's true too, but withholding affirmation, withholding affection, withholding encouragement, withholding service. And I wonder if we're tempted to think that the fire has died in our relationship and you can't get it going again. It might be because you haven't been actively giving love. It might be because In the dysfunction of your marriage, your spouse has said, until you get this right, I'm not going to, which is an assignment. And it's caused you to withhold and to step back. And in this midst of this kind of waiting for another person to initiate, there's this dance that happens where you just kind of talk around each other and nothing actually progresses because really what needs to happen is for you to lay down the assignments and to lay down the advice and just to say, hey, I love you. How can I serve you? How can I give you love? And oftentimes we don't like that. But marriage is a covenant and not a contract. In a contract, you can give assignments. In a covenant, the only thing you can give is love. So I wonder if there's a step you have to take today as a spouse where maybe you realize you've been withholding love from your spouse. And the thing that God wants you to do is to be the one that initiates, the one that takes that first step and says, hey, honey, I'm sorry, and I love you, and I want to start walking together in love with you. How much that would change the dynamics of our relationships. Do you have time for one last thing? One last thing? One person does. Great. Song of Solomon, let's go to the next verse here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Solomon's wife continues to say to him, she says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. And that sounds a little awkward to us, right? Um, But in this era of living, it was considered very inappropriate for a woman to show any public display of affection to anyone who was not a family member. Um, we kind of have this today as well, right? You've kind of seen public displays of affection on the outside and someone walks by and is like, get a room, guys, come, gosh, right? We have this same idea. And, and what, what Solomon's wife is saying is, is she's saying, I, I want you so badly that even if, if, it, if it had to be that for me to show my love to the world that you had to be a relative of mine, I'd be willing to go to that extent, as weird as that is. She says in verse two, I would lead you And bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. The last log that we can put on the fire of romance, this fourth log is this, is that you would pursue persistently, regardless of publicity. That you might pursue your spouse persistently, regardless of 
of what it looks like or who knows. His wife says, I know there's a cultural norm at stake here, but if I found you, I would kiss you and I would lead you and bring you into this home. I find it interesting how many people act um, embarrassed to pursue their spouse. Um, I think of sometimes when marriage conflict becomes a public matter, how easy it is for either party involved to just shut down and to, because of the, the pressure from society around them, to, to say, well, well, in their pride, well, well that, that's, you obviously know the problem here, so what's the use? This is a lost cause. And Solomon's wife says to him, hey, I'm not going anywhere. I am in this. Even if it comes to the point where I see you and you're out in public and something's gone on between us, I would go and I'd find you and I would kiss you and I would lead you and bring you back into the home. I would argue there's nothing more disheartening than a man who stops pursuing his wife and lets her leave. Like guys, men, go get the heart of your wife. Like if you're married, your wife has entrusted you with her heart. It's yours to pursue. If you're not married and she's told you no, don't pursue her. That's creepy. (laughs) But guys, if you're married and your wife and you have tension. It is your responsibility. The Bible, time and time again in Scripture, puts the onus upon the man to lead in these types of areas and to pursue the heart of his wife. And so I wonder how many here need to just reaffirm that commitment that you made as a vow that you would pursue persistently regardless of the publicity. Regardless of who finds out and regardless of how public this gets, regardless of all the shame and the skeletons in our closet kind of coming forward, regardless, I, 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 I'm in this and I, re- I refuse to let up. I, I refuse and so I want to be in this with you. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Um, he, in his letter to the Ephesian church, talks a lot about the roles of husbands and wives and, and the place of marriage. And as I'm reminded of this passage here in Song of Solomon, chapter 7 and 8, I'm reminded that it works on two layers. And then in the surface layer here, we see that we're to notice what no one else notices, and we're to keep dates to keep dating, and to give love, not assignments or advice, and to pursue persistently, regardless of publicity. But I'm reminded in Song of Solomon that there's a second layer to this all. And historically, we've seen this as the layer of of Christ and the bride, which is us, the church. I'm reminded that entailed in all of this is this deep, rich love that Jesus Christ has for you and for me, even though we're sinful people. Thanks be to God that Jesus pursued us persistently. That he made a public declaration of his love for us on the cross. Thanks be to God that uh, he chose to give love in dying on the cross for our sins. That Christ didn't give us assignments to fulfill or good advice to follow, but he gave himself. And that through the gospel, we see God is love, not law. 
And thanks be to God that through Christ we have access back to the Father, redemption and reconciliation, that our relationship can thrive and grow with him, that we can walk in newness of life and grow in the intimacy that we have with God. And this God who notices everything about us, our insecurities, our weaknesses, our successes, and our failures. So much so that he knows us fully and yet still died and loves us fully. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that we might actively love one another, because this is the act of love that Christ has shown us. And I'd be foolish to suggest that romantic love on this side of heaven uh, between a husband and a wife can be modeled on anything else other than the sovereign and pure love of God as revealed to us in Christ. And so if you're here today and the fire has died in your relationship and you, you're kind of looking for that gas pipe to start the fire again, you realize it's going to take a little bit of work to kindle the romance again. I would encourage you not to try and do that without first accepting the forgiveness for your sins from Jesus Christ and allowing him to be the foundation that you build your lives upon. Because it's only in Christ that relationships make sense anyway. So what I want us to do today as we leave from this place is to take a moment and to pause and reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ for our behalf. One of the rhythms that we have here at Bethel Church is to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper on a, on a consistent basis. Usually once a month we'll do this. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he uh, sat with his disciples and he shared a meal with them. And during that meal, after eating, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks for it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then after that, he took the cup in the same way he blessed it and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. And he said, for as often as you drink, Paul says, for as often as you drink this cup and, 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 and uh, eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So I can't think of a better way for us to uh, close a message on romance than for us to remember and reflect upon the romantic love that God has. Not, not the erotic love, but the romantic, pursuing, heart-level, want-to-love-you-fully type of love that we see through the cross in Jesus Christ. And so our volunteers are going to come forward here now, and they're going to pass out the elements. And I would encourage you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, to take this moment now to consider what I've said, but don't take the elements. Just go ahead and pass them along. Um, and, and afterwards, if you wouldn't mind coming and talking with me, I'd love to, to share with you the hope that we have in the gospel. But if you are a believer, I would love for you, especially if you're sitting next to your spouse, to maybe take time just to pray together as you hold the elements in your hand. And then uh, after everyone's been served, I'll come back and we'll take them together. Let me pray for us. Father, we approach your table with gratitude. We're so thankful, God, that you care about our lives. You care so deeply that even you, de you dedicated a whole book of the Bible to knowing how to handle relationships. And we're grateful, Lord, that the model for those relationships is ultimately you and the Trinity, the, the love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
and the outpouring of that love that we feel as Christ came to redeem us and to reconcile us, to create in us a new life. And so, Father, as we approach your throne now, we say thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice and for your resurrection power. It's in your name we pray. Amen.